give you a quick recap as we've been going through the first chapter. We're about to wrap up the first chapter. And Paul started this letter essentially saying uh, about two or three things. One, he was speaking about Philippi, a community that was gathered around the gospel of the kingdom and how much joy that gave him. He was enthralled that there was this church that was gathered around this big thing, bigger than anything else, the gospel of the kingdom of God in Christ. The second thing we saw was that, was that very gospel that enabled Paul to endure everything or anything. He was so enthralled by Christ that he could go through moments of prosperity. He could go through moments of trial. It didn't matter. He was held and anchored by Jesus Christ. And therefore, he was enthralled and overjoyed that there was this It's either God or the devil, (laughs) as are most things. Okay, I think it's better now. I think it's better. Now he turns to the Philippians, and he says, you know, not only is Paul enduring a lot of of affliction, we talked about prison, we talked about affliction, uh, we talked about broken dreams and broken relationships, and then Paul actually in this text in verse 30 will actually say, you know, you guys will go through some of this yourself. And then he turns a corner away from himself and now to the church in Philippi and because the word is, is now and forever, it's, it's for the church in Santa Barbara as well. And, and Paul would say a few things. He's taking all of that and he's now turning it on to us. And I think as we go through this text, I think he's saying a, few thi- a, a, a number of things. I think one, he's giving us He's going to give us a vision of life with Jesus in the city. And then he'll give us a way forward with that life. And then he'll end it with kind of reminding us of the thrill of following Jesus. So he starts with a vision of what life with with Christ looks like. Gives us a way forward. Reminds us of the, the, the beauty, the blessing, the thrill of following Christ. So... This is what I mean by the vision of a life with Christ. He says in verse 27, that first line, right? Here's the vision. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. There it is. It's Paul's vision for everything. It's Paul's driving ambition. Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. And I just want to break this down for a few seconds. When he says only, reading out of the ESV, some, uh, some of yours might say a different word, like whatever, ha- you know, something of that nature. But that word only is, in other words, Paul is saying, whatever happens to you. He just got done saying, this is what happened to me. It was kind of uncomfortable, got thrown in prison, nothing to eat, nobody loves me, uh, and I might die soon. Uh, this may or may not happen to you. You might get out of it. You might have a hard life, but whatever happens is what he's saying right there. Only this. In other words, what he's about to say is whatever happens to you going forward from here on out, let your life be governed by a single vision. And he's been talking about the single vision over and over. He's going to say the same thing, but he's starting here saying to the church, whatever happens to you, whether good or bad, let your life be governed by a single vision. Then he, he, he gives us that vision, right? He says, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. When he says, you, let, that, let your manner of life, that, that phrase right there, five words, is actually a single word in his original language. 
And it carries this, this connotation of a city. It, if you were to literally translate that word that he used, it could also mean uh, to be a citizen or to behave as a citizen. He's saying, whatever happens, no matter good or bad, let your manner of life, or in other words, behave as a citizen worthy of the gospel. This is, this is very interesting. Because of the type of city that Paul is speaking about, Philippi. Philippi was a city uh, uh, distant from Rome in the area of Macedonia, but it had something very peculiar and special about it. When it was founded, uh, uh, when Philippi was founded in 42 AD, so about 20 years before this letter was written, uh, through a variety of battles and skirmishes and cultural, uh, political uh, arrangements, Philippi was granted something special. They were made citizens of Rome with a special status and privilege that no other town outside of Rome had. And so with that came all of these benefits, all of these privileges. Whereas, uh, uh, and we actually see some of this in the book of Acts. Paul talks about himself as a Roman, uh, as a Roman citizen, and he's, 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 uh, he's discussing with a jailer or a centurion who, who, who questions him and says, how much... How much did that cost you? I'm a Roman citizen too, but I had to pay a, a pretty steep a price for that. And Paul says, well, I was born. I was born a citizen. And so it's very costly. It's coveted. With Roman citizenship comes a lot of uh, fair protection. So uh, we see in the book of Acts that Roman citizens are, are treated, even criminal Romans are treated with a, a certain amount of humane treatment that others are not allotted. You're also given uh, certain tax exemptions. You get to own land. And uh, there's also just a certain type of ethos, a Roman ethos. I belong to Rome. I'm a, I, am a, I am a Roman citizen. I'm Roman. And you could be far away from Rome and yet still benefit from that citizenship even though you're far away. Now, this is very interesting because later Paul will actually tell these Philippians that their true citizenship, chapter 3, verse 20, is where? Is in heaven. He tells a group of people who are proud of their citizenship proud of their country, proud of all that that entails. Hey, you have a deeper sense of belonging. Your ultimate allegiance is actually to heaven, even as you are endeavoring to be a good citizen here in Philippi to Rome. And so right here, he's, he's echoing what he'll say later in chapter 3. He's saying, whatever happens, let your mani- manner of life, or in other words, please behave as citizens worthy of the gospel. It, this is very This is very poignant. He's saying, as citizens of Rome and Philippi, I want you, no matter what happens, to ultimately be good citizens of heaven. Live your life that reflects your true country, even as you live in this country. Very timely words for the church here in Santa Barbara this weekend. If we were to turn that around... And apply it to our lives, Paul might say something like this. As citizens of God's kingdom living in Santa Barbara, make sure you live with an ultimate allegiance to Christ. Be a good citizen here, Romans 13, right? Pray for your leaders, letter in Timothy, but don't forget where your ultimate allegiance lies. It's not in your country. It's not in your ethnic background or heritage. It's not in your family background. It's not in your 
friendships, it's not in your status, it's not in your job, your, your truest identity, and therefore your truest allegiance is to Christ, the King of the kingdom. And so right here, Paul is waving a vision of a kingdom life in front of a bunch of Philippians and a bunch of Santa Barbarans. And he's reminding us who we really belong to. The person that we really belong to said that if you want to, be a, uh, to, to make disciples and a disciple is someone, Matthew 28, who is learning to obey everything that I commanded them. And so what that means is we do our best to live here. We honor our leaders. We pray for them. But the moment down here collides with the principles and the character of up there, we resist it. Our true allegiance doesn't belong here. It actually belongs up there. And when those two collide, we have to remember who we belong to. Then he gives us a way forward. He says in 27 verse 28. So up until this point, he says, As citizens living in Philippi or Santa Barbara, remember that your true allegiance is to the king of kings. And then he gives us a way forward. He says, so that whether I come and see you or I am absent, I want to hear that you are standing firm in one spirit. This is, the, this is the way forward. This is the how. I want you to stand firm in one spirit with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. Let's break that down. He tells us, I want you to stand firm in one spirit. And this speaks Simply about intention. You are steadfast. You made up your mind. You have gained resolve. And you have said, I am going to do this thing that I have set my mind to do. Intention. In the next line, he then says, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. That word striving comes from a Greek word, which is where we get uh, the modern day word athlete. And it means literally to exert effort, to work at this. So we don't just have a vision, we have an intention. We don't just have an intention. Right here, he's telling us the means. He's saying, you've got to work hard at this. You've got to strive, work with all of your might for the faith of the gospel. And then he says, and do not be frightened or intimidated in anything by your opponents. In other words, there will be times in your life if you are living according to the words of Christ and the spirit of Christ, where your lifestyle your beliefs, your behavior will collide with that which is popular in our culture. Remember, God didn't take the Philippians out of, Phil, uh, out of Philippi. They remained in Philippi as a city on the hill, as the salt of the earth. God isn't taking us out of Santa Barbara, right? He's not telling us to go hide off in the mountains uh, for the next 10 years. We live here. We live here for a purpose, and that purpose is to live as called out ones, as people who are called by Christ's name and are a light of his, uh, reflecting his glory. And yet with that, there's going to be some times where we conflict with the culture around us, um, with the powers around us, the systems and structures around us, with popular opinion, and Paul is just saying, hey, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Popular opinion isn't always the right opinion. Follow Jesus, right? 
You might say, why, why should I do this? And he gives us the reason for that. He says, the, if you do this, if you're captivated by the vision of Christ and you endeavor to stand firm and strive and press on in doing this, this will be a clear sign to you. Uh, it'll tell you a number of things. And he says, uh, it'll be, uh, for your opponents that are mocking you, it'll be a sign of, uh, of them falling apart, their destruction. But it'll also be a sign of your salvation and that from God. In other words, Paul is just saying, you're going you're gonna to prove by the character of your life and the fruit of your life that what Jesus has been saying all of this time is true. That's, that's essentially what it sounds like he's saying. Saying the fruit, you, you don't have to prove things with fancy words or eloquence. Just live like Jesus, and people will see. He doesn't just say, your opponents will see. He says, you'll see too. You'll see by the quality of your own life. If you take Jesus seriously and uh, endeavor to abide in his life and to live the way that he says to live by the power of the Holy Spirit, you will see change and transformation in your life that will speak for itself. Uh, we use, uh, there's that... Analogy, we could say good tree, good fruit, bad tree, bad fruit. It's the fruit, that, that kind of a metaphor that Jesus loved to use. I'll just read it in Matthew chapter 7, verse 16 through 20. Jesus said, you will recognize people by their fruit. And then he goes on into a, uh, to that, me- he just lengthens that metaphor. And he says, are grapes gathered from thorn bush- bushes or figs from thistles? Rhetorical question, right? No! So every healthy tree bears good fruit. But the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize people by their fruit. Not merely by what they say. Also not by what they believe. Or say that they believe. You will recognize them by what comes out of them. And it's interesting what Paul says right after that, that it's not just the fruit that comes out of them when, they, when they're trying to manifest the right type of fruit, but all the time. He says in the next line, or, or the line before, so whether I come and see you or I'm absent. In other words, this is the type of life that happens whether people are looking or not. He's speaking about character. A character is, who you act, uh, is what you act like by automatic, natural occurrence. It's not what you're trying to do in the moment when you intentionally are, are thinking about it. It's just, it's just what comes out naturally. And everybody has character. It's just bad character or good character. Good character we call virtue, right? But what comes out of you in the heat of the moment when you're not even thinking about it, it's second nature and it's automatic, that's character. That's who you are. And Paul says, I, want, I don't just want you to change your behavior when people are looking and when you're trying. I want you to be tra- uh, transformed at the core of who you are so that those, comes, those things come out of who you actually are. Amen. This is deep down type of stuff. This is why transformation of character matters. It's important. Uh, it's not just when people are watching. It's not when doing the right or moral thing gets you ahead in life or when it benefits you in the immediate. It's something that happens frequently and all the time, whether people are watching or they are not, because it's who you actually are. This is the beauty of the kingdom life coming upon people through Christ. 
In other words, it's not so much that Jesus was saying, try to love your enemies even though secretly I know you hate them. It's, I want you to become, through my power, the type of people who actually love your enemies. Who are not stung by the way they attack you. I'm not mere, I'm just talking about thick skin. I'm talking about people who are so filled with the love of the Father that the worst your enemies can do to you doesn't even sting you. He's not so much telling us, don't be angry, even though I know inside you are losing it. He's not saying, when you're cut off in the parking lot, I want you to withhold your finger from your, you know, that act of sign language, even though I know deep down you would love to do it. He's saying, I want you to become the type of person who's not enslaved to anger, who's not controlled by his base emotions, who's free. He's not saying, I I want you to try not to lie. He's saying, I want you to become the type of people who love honesty and transparency and vulnerability. You love it, and that's the way you want to live, and you're able to by the power of the Spirit. In other words, what we see in Paul's paragraph here is a pattern of spirit-enabled transformation. He gives us a vision, he gives us an intention, and he leaves us with means of getting there. The, the late Dallas Willard loved this pattern that we see in Paul. He used to call it a, a VIM, uh, just put it into an acronym, V-I-M, Vision, Intention, and Means. Uh, and begin, and he, always, he spoke at length about why those three things are so important. Just in life in general, but even in the Christian life, uh, for anything that you want to do that you're unable to do, anything that you want to change, any amount of transformation that you want, you need these three things, and we see it all over the Bible. And Dallas would go on to explain why it's important. He said, vision is really is, is that compelling story that moves you to change. It's that thing that, that you see that inspires you. Uh, you can, you know, an example outside of spirituality is maybe healthy eating. You need a vision in order to change the way that you eat. A uh, few people just wake up one morning and they're like, you know, I love McDonald's, but I'm going to not eat McDonald's and I'm just going to eat kale chips the rest of my life just because. Like, the, no reason. And if they do say that, they usually give up the next day. No, people that change the way that they eat usually have a compelling vision. It's, I want to be healthy. I want to live until I'm 90. I want my energy back again. Things like that. It's that compelling vision that moves them. But we need more than just a, a vision. But in the Christian life, this might be something like this. It, it's, it's beyond just, I need to do the ten right things that people tell me that I should do. That's not enough. That's not a compelling vision. It must come from something deeper. It must come from, for example, Jesus has proven that he is the best thing that has ever happened to humanity. And his life is the best thing that I have seen. And I want that. I want to live that way. There's something in the life of Jesus that is compelling and valuable. I want that for me. In other words, we're, we're saying, we're seeing in something desirable and valuable. We're seeing what life could be like and what uh, 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 the idea of, of a particular style of life and how it would be if we had that and it's compelling. But a vision itself won't change you either. You also need an intention. Intention. 
Dallas goes on to say, an intention is just that commitment. It's that point where you're like, hey, I'm going to do this. You're not just thrilled about the thought of something. You are making up your mind. I am committed to doing this. Now, think, for example, of uh, someone struggling with alcoholism. They might have a vision for change, right? That vision might be, well, they might look at their lives and see their health deteriorating. They might see their, uh, their behavior out of control and it's affecting their lives. Their health is deteriorating. Maybe uh, their spouse left them. Maybe their, their kids are suffering from it. And so the vision is this. If I stop drinking, all of that will change. And how, know, how many of you know people who have seen that vision and have not intended to do anything about it? We need to intend to do something. For the Christian life, it's the same. It looks like this. I believe that Jesus is good and that everything that he says is true. just want to do all of it. It's just a little too hard and it's a little too uncomfortable. But that's not real Christian belief. Belief, as we see in the New Testament, is trust. I intend to do, Matthew chapter 28, all that Christ commanded to do because I trust him that the things that he says are good, even if they're hard. But then with a vision and intention, those aren't enough either. How many of you have, uh, well, here's an example, New Year's resolutions. That's a vision and intention, right? 2017, I've got 12 things that I am going to do differently in this life. And it could be anything. I'm going to exercise daily. I'm going to quit this habit. I'm going to spend more time at the beach. You know, I'm not going to work myself to death. I'm going to read through the Bible in one month. You know, and then you get to uh, you get to February to the you know seven chapters of sacrificing cows, and you're like, I'm going to start reading the Times or something. I don't know. You had the vision, you had the intention, but you didn't have the means. You didn't have the training. We talked about this last week, that because of the flesh, because of those ingrained habits that we're so used to, the way that we act when we're not even thinking, vision and intention by themselves are not enough. We need to put effort and training into the spiritual life, or we will fall to the same problems, to the same struggles over and over and over and over and over again. You might say, well, wait a minute. What is this thing you're saying about effort? I thought we were saved by grace through faith and not by works, for it is a gift of God. Doesn't that mean we don't do anything? God does it all? Haven't I been saying? You know, I mean, my bumper sticker says, you know, God, take the wheel. Let go and let God. I've been, say, you know, I've been saying that to everybody like, my whole life. Is, doesn't grace mean that God does everything? Now, there's a truth in that. You have been saved by grace, not by yourself. It has been an entirely on the initiative of God who has moved towards you. That's the beauty of the gospel. And that thought was, was renewed 500 years ago during the Reformation when things in the church had gotten so corrupt and broken and dirty and people were uh, relying on their works and behaviors to find uh, acceptance by God. They were trying to earn God's favor. And so uh, a bull was let loose in the china shop, a, little, a young German by the name of Martin Luther, who brought people back 
to the elemental principles of the Bible. And he said, listen, you guys, God is the one who comes after you. We just believe in him. He's the one who saves. And that's good. And we're thankful for that. Along the, along the line, somewhere down, down the line, we have taken that and said, well, that means we do nothing ever. And Christianity is a passive spi- a spirituality. I just kind of show up to church and something happens to me and I do nothing. And that's not good. Following Jesus is actually a lot of work. It takes effort. Just like anything good in your life takes effort. Grace is not opposed to effort. Grace is opposed to earning. Those are two different things, right? It's opposed to you earning your salvation. It's not opposed to you working. In fact, Paul would say later in this very book, I want you to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you to work and to will for his good pleasure. God is working in you to work. And that's why we see Paul uh, comparing the Christian life to things that require activity. He compares it to athletes and Olympians running a race and boxers who aren't just aimlessly beating the air and people who are uh, uh, running and not getting tired. And uh, he describes his own journey as fighting the good fight of faith. And uh, uh, Peter would later say, uh, my dear brothers, work hard to prove that you are really among those uh, God has called and chosen. Work hard, he says. Uh, Paul would say to Titus, uh, speaking of grace, he would say, the grace, the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. I'm just going to keep reading because this is so good. Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our God, great God and Savior Jesus Christ. There's the vision right there who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. There's the intention. Because of the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, I am zealous to do works. And there's the means. By grace, we are training to renounce everything that isn't of Christ. It's all over the Bible. And all over the Bible is this calling to put our hand to the plow and to work hard. This might sound peculiar to us, and I suspect that if it does, it's because Christianity or following Jesus has not yet made its way into our heart as something that is is actually a good thing. Because look at all the things that you're passionate about and love. You've gotten good at those things, and you worked at them. You work hard at the things that you care about and believe are good. You have a vision of how life would be if you would do those things and you were motivated. We need a vision about following Christ. And I think for a lot of people, we see following Christ as drudgery, hard work, sacrifice uh, that pays no dividends. And what we need to see is that this is the blessed life of the kingdom. And this is actually something that is full of joy and peace and goodness. And this is what I think Paul ends 
with doing is by reminding us of the thrill of the call of following Jesus. And he does it in a very peculiar way. I'll just read it and you'll probably see it. But he says in verse 29 and 30, it has been granted to you. It's a gift. It has been granted to you for the sake of Christ that you should not only believe in Jesus, but also suffer for his sake. Engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. That's weird. It's been granted to you to suffer for Christ. That's a weird thing to say, Paul. Now, if you're like me, you know, we've been here for a year or two, and we've gone through things like Daniel and First Peter and the uh, Sermon on the Mount and Philippians, and we've been talking about suffering, and maybe you've gotten to a point where you're like, okay, Jesus, I, I can tolerate suffering. I'll get through it if I have to. I, I can see that. But granted? You have granted us the opportunity to suffer for Christ's namesake? That's a little too far. Well, what we've been seeing so far is, is that following Jesus is not always a cakewalk. There's sacrifices that we have to make, Right? It's an effort and sometimes it's a fight. But what Paul knows is something that I hope we know or will catch. Is that it's work, but it is the happiest work that you will ever undertake. Which would cause Paul to say, we have been granted the opportunity to lose everything that doesn't matter in order to follow Jesus. Jesus himself would say, you want to follow me? You want to be my disciple? You must pick up your cross In other words, you must die to yourself and pick up my life instead. The person who loses their life will find their life on my behalf. It's an upside-down way of thinking. It It is a stripping away of the things that we thought were important in order to gain something that is actually important. That's why Paul says, it has been granted to you to lose everything that doesn't matter in order to gain what actually does. Jesus would put it this way. Matthew 11, he would say, take my yoke upon you. When the rabbis in Jesus' day uh, spoke, they, they, they used to speak about a yoke. Uh, they got that from the oxen that would be bound together by that little wooden contraption that would keep them locked together. And they, they borrowed from that analogy a yoke. And a yoke meant in rabbinical language Uh, that method of interpretation that that rabbi had about the Torah, about the Bible. And that particular rabbi had a particular interpretation of the scriptures, and out of that interpretation came a certain way to live. And that was the yoke. And so people would gravitate towards certain rabbis who had a certain yoke, and they'd be like, I like that one. That is the right way to live. No, this this guy has the right yoke. That's the right way to live. And over time, there are all types of different yokes. Uh, one in particular, uh, in the time of Jesus, a little bit before the time of Jesus, Hillel, Rabbi Hillel, was known for having a very in-depth, complicated, difficult, strenuous yoke. Hundreds, maybe thousands of requirements that were hard to keep. And out of that line came the Pharisees. And their yoke was hard. It was hard to keep. And Joseph, uh, Jesus Came, came in on the scene and he, he says to these bedraggled, broken people who just want to know and love God and are being kept away by, by the religious professionals. 
And, he says to, uh, and Jesus says to these broken, bedraggled, poor people, try my yoke. Learn from me. I'm gentle and I'm humble. And you will find rest for your souls. Listen to that. Take my, my way of living and you'll find rest for your soul. My yoke will bring you rest. For my yoke, listen to this, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Why doesn't it always seem like that? Because Jesus does say, he said to the the rich young ruler, give away everything that you have and follow me. The rich young ruler ran off being like, that's too hard, man. All throughout the disciples' early careers, They were struggling with the commands that Jesus called them to do. It was hard. And even today, we see things that Jesus says like, love your enemy. Pray for those who persecute you. And we're like, Jesus, that's hard. It doesn't seem like your yoke is easy. It seems like it's hard. And I would venture to say, this is just my, my, I suspect, I know in my own life, it doesn't always seem easy like he says it is because I didn't have the vision for following Jesus that it is the blessed life and it's worthy of doing. See, when we don't see or believe that something is actually good for us, we won't intend to do any of it. But when we see why following Jesus is the greatest thing that we've ever been exposed to, why the kingdom life is a blessing Namely, it's a different quality of life from above that comes upon us that fills us with love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, and kindness, things that nothing in this world or life can afford us. Then the difficulties inherent along the way seem to pale in comparison. Isn't that what Paul said in Romans chapter 8? I consider the sufferings that I'm going through in this present life not even worthy of comparison to the glory that is to come. So for you, you might be looking at the words of Jesus, you might be looking at the scriptures, you might be just basic things and you'd be like, "This, I know this is good, but it's hard. And it might even start hard at first. I think this is true of just about everything. A couple of years ago, um, well, for a decade, a bunch of people close to me in my life were always trying to get me to, to exercise and work out. And they would just say things like, hey, you should go to the gym. You should run. You should hike. And I'd be like, yeah, a lot of things I should be doing. I should not eat donuts while sitting on the couch. But I'm not going to do it. And similar to the Christian life where we're often told, you should do this and not do that. You should do this and not do that. I wasn't grabbed by a compelling vision of a better life until that vision came later. It was when my my daughter came out of her room in a dress and wearing mom's high heels. And I was like, oh, dang. And in that moment, I got my vision. And the vision was this. 
I am going to be bigger than all of her future boyfriends. And the vision worked. That first year, I gained almost 20 pounds. And I thought to myself, wow, if I can gain 20 pounds a year, well, at that pace, in, 20, uh, in, in eight years, I won't even have to answer the door, man. This is like modern-day Rapunzel, right? I was captured by a, by a greater vision. Something drove me. A quality of life that I desperately wanted that moved me to do things that were uncomfortable. Let me tell you, it was uncomfortable at first. I started running, jogging. I hate it. I only like running or jogging or hiking if there's something waiting for me at the end, like bacon. I'll jog for bacon. And so at first it was just hard, but I was driven by a, by a greater vision and an intention. And I would wake up and I'd be like, oh, I gotta go again today. It's already been a month. Like, this is crazy. I have to do this once every month, you know? And, and just these people in my life, you gotta go every day. You gotta go right now. You gotta live, breathe, and move this. And I was like, ah, I'm dying. And the rumors are true about leg day. I hated it. I was like, well, can't I just, I just wear baggy pants. Like, no one looks at my legs anyway. But over time, as I began running, as I began moving, as I began working, something changed. It was very bizarre. The thing that I used to hate, I woke up, I, I, I remember waking up one day and I was like, I, and I went, did the routine, came back home, drove back home, and I was like, I felt good. And over time, I began to change through these routines. And where I used to hate the very things that I was trying to do by my vision and intention through these means, I began to love. Where I got to a certain point where I was like, I'm cooped up in the house. You ever get that feeling? I'm cooped up in the house. I need to move. All of a sudden, my body started to fall in line with my heart by doing this pattern that we see all over the Bible. And that's just with one thing. Timothy would say, hey, it's good to invest into your bodily, uh, into your bodily strength, but how much more so your inner person? I want you to look at the disciples who are doing things that we look at and we say, that doesn't sound fun. And they were doing it And they were saying things like they would get flogged and imprisoned and they would come out of the prison and they would rejoice. And they would say, we have been found worthy of suffering shame for the the name of Jesus Christ. You have to ask yourself, what happened to them to give them that different outlook on life? And is that something that I can have too? We have it with so many things. We have it in the gym. We have it with education. We have it with uh, different habits and patterns, with the way that we eat, with uh, new hobbies that we develop, with New Year's resolutions. We, change ourse- we are changed with greater visions, with new intentions, and with means and habits that actually change even what we want. Can the same thing be true for walking with Christ? It seems like it can be. A vision, an intention, and a means by the power of the Holy Spirit. The question that we should be asking, the disciples were willing to suffer anything to follow Jesus. 
If there's anything that you leave with this morning, may it be asking yourself this question. What did the disciples see in Jesus that compelled them so much? What grabbed their attention? What did they see in the life and quality of Jesus in his words and in his actions and in his relationship with the Father that moved them to want the same thing, vision, intention, and means? Because that is what we also need to see. We need a compelling vision that will change everything, that will change our intentions and move us to exert effort through means that will do things. Because Jesus didn't come to make converts to Christianity. He came to make copies of himself. He came to make disciples who take him seriously at every word and desire and actually do everything that he said. One way that you can start to catch a vision like that is by opening up any of the four Gospels and start reading until your heart erupts. Read and pretend like you're a fly on the wall. Follow Jesus around. Look at what he did. Look at what he said. Look at how people interacted with him. Look at everything. Study the life of Jesus. Walk with Jesus in the text. Read until you catch the vision. And when you catch that vision, intentionally decide, I am going to do this by the Spirit's power. And then, when that happens, you can take small steps. Times of silence and solitude. Fasting, reading the scripture, being in community with one another, repenting, confession. All the things that we do have to come from a compelling vision or they just devolve into legalism. But when you have a captivating vision of Jesus Christ and you want him more than anything, then the means become acts of freedom. Rails to guide you in the right direction. I've been uh, slowly dripping some of those means. Uh, the other day we talked about solitude and silence. Getting away from the noise, being stripped of the noise, including the noise of our, our own mouths and minds, and just listening to God. I've talked in the past about fasting. There are all these means of, of taking something that we, we crave but don't need in order to receive something that we actually do need. And so there's these, these practices where we take things away, practices of abstinence, fasting, solitude, and silence. There's also practices where we fill up on something. We need both. So I've talked about those others. I want to give you something where we fill up, and this is where I'll end. It's, Jesus said in John, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, you can ask for anything, and it will be done for you by my Father who is in heaven. He's talking here more than just reading the Bible. He's talking about it being in you, in your mind. He's, he's I believe, talking about memorizing Scripture. We, we hit that in Joshua, our last series, right in the beginning when God says uh, for this to, to, to be in your heart, in your mind, meditating on it day and night. And if you do that, you will prosperous and you'll find the right way. There's only one way for it to be constantly in your mind and in your heart is if you know God's word. And so I, don't, I just don't want to tell you 
hey, try this. I, wa- I, wanted, I, want, you to tr- I want you to do it. <laughs> I want you to try it and see for yourself if your life isn't slightly jarred. So, what if we do this? If it doesn't work, money back guarantee. You didn't give me anything, so it's free. Gift of God. But try it. And we'll do this next, next week. We'll talk about it next week. But what if we memorized a, sh- a short passage of Scripture together? Like, what if, what if we took that section in Philippians chapter 2 uh, that gospel poem, it's just like six or seven verses, and memorized a verse a week, recited it, and built up, and in a month and a half, we memorized the core of all of Philippians, which is a declaration of who Jesus is. And what if you took that into short little times of solitude and silence and just let it fill your mind and heart? I bet you, some of you will be so moved by the heart of God well, you're just going to have to try yourself. What if we try that next week? Is that cool? But it starts with a vision. I'm going to ask Alex and the team to come up as we sing. Without the vision, everything that we do, it's just religious games. And you know what that feels like, doing, 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 no change. It results in bitterness. We have to have the vision. So, If it's okay with you, I'm just going to pray. God gives it to us. Paul prayed a prayer. Uh, I'm just going to pray Paul's prayer for you. If, if, If you want more of Jesus today, you can open up your hands as a posture to receive. Close your eyes, whatever you need to do. But make this your prayer. Agree with me in your heart. Say yes and amen, Lord. Let me pray for us. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. According to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. You being rooted and grounded in love would be able to have the strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge so that you may be filled with all the fullness of God now to him who is able to do far more abundantly more than anything that we can ask or think according to the power that is at work within us. To him be glory in the church through Christ Jesus through every generation forever and ever.